0: That you know Him. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, as well as Acts chapter 7. You'll need to locate both places, or you can trust me to try to get them up here on the screen for you. Ephesians 4 and Acts chapter 7. Let's look first at Ephesians chapter four, one verse verse 32. "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." Look now at Acts chapter seven, starting in verse 54. This is the conclusion of Stephen's sermon. And this is the stoning of Stephen. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Will you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the testimony that you have given to us in your word. And Lord, as we come to it now, we come hungry and eager, for we need to be filled. We recognize this as your words, and so we listen and submit to it as we submit to you. Father, I pray that this morning, that as, as I preach, that my words would fall to the ground, that they would blow away, they can be forgotten. Only let your word remain. and Let it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. Let it produce fruit that causes us to love radically and forgive graciously. And to display to the world what our God who is in heaven is like. I ask these things in your name with great hope. Amen. Well, church, over the last several months, we have been talking about the power of the gospel. In some ways, I think we could say that this series, which began as a winter series and has turned into a winter and spring series, it's a series that has been really a meditation on Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for those who believe. We've looked at a number of different ways that the gospel power works in our life, different avenues that it works itself out in our daily life. We've seen how God actually uses the gospel itself to transform and to sanctify us. We, me, who were once enemies of God, once haters of God, have now been transformed by the power of the gospel to becoming lovers of God. And now we love the glory of God more than anything else in all the universe because we have now seen what it is like. This power, this gospel power does not just affect one small part of our life. It is not just good to get us to heaven and out of hell, but instead it affects every single part of our lives. There is no room that remains untouched. God is changing everything, and if you're in Christ, he's changing and transforming you. We've seen that the gospel initiates an internal heart transformation. It changes the way that we view God, and it changes the way that we relate to God. We've seen even how the gospel changes the way that we view ourselves, and talked about matters of identity and self-esteem and our perception of our own righteousness. But as we've begun discussing recently, the gospel is not just an internal reality. It is also an external reality. The gospel also initiates an external transformation. So that it changes the way that we act, the way that we suffer, the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we relate To other people in our behaviors. But it especially changes the way that we relate to other people. In fact, I would argue that the gospel can be seen in your life primarily in your relationships with other people. That if you want to see how God is changing you and how God is transforming your life, look primarily at how you interact with other people. At how you interact with other people. You really could Think about this powerful work of the gospel, this miracle, this miraculous power that is changing us primarily as God changing you to obey the commands, the Ten Commandments, or even just the First Commandment. Perhaps you remember how the Bible can be summed up in love God and love people, right? Do you remember the great commandment? We have it recorded for us in Mark chapter 12 where Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And then he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you see that? If you're going to be made right with God, if you want to know God and stand on his holy hill and stand in his presence, you must follow these two commandments. They're not optional. They're not reserved for the spiritually mature or those serious-minded Christians. This is required for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that if you're a believer in Christ, you already know that you don't do this very well. You know that you don't love God like you should. You choose idols instead. You know that you don't love your neighbor like you should. You choose yourself instead. So the good news for us who've chosen to follow Christ, we say, we don't do this very well. We need Christ to do it for us. And now we trust that he is changing us to obey these commands. And he's using the power of the gospel to do it. We've spent most of our time in the series talking about the internal transformation that goes on in our hearts of how God works But now we are starting to turn the corner to see the external ways that the gospel works in our lives. Last time we began that transition by talking about how it is that the gospel frees us from the bondage of selfishness. It breaks us free from this incredible self-love that pulses through our hearts. And instead it turns us outward to love other people. The gospel frees you from loving yourself more than anyone else. It frees you from that. It reminds me of Smeagol in Lord of the Rings, who's so inward and bent in. The gospel shines light into our hearts and frees us from self-love. We're going to continue to talk about how this works itself out in our lives during the rest of the series. I think it is possible to over... Uh, I think it's probably impossible to overstate the importance of relationships in the Bible. It's impossible to think about the Christian faith without thinking about human relationships. We've already seen the great two commandments, right? Love God, that's vertical, and then love people, that's horizontal. Well, Jesus takes it even further. If you see in 1 John chapter 4, speaking through the writer John, look at these words and how extreme they are. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you claim to love God, If you claim to be a follower of Christ, this is not just about you and God. This is about you and every single person in the world, right? If you claim to love God, you must also love your neighbor, your brother. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but we don't get to choose our brothers and sisters. My two daughters have learned this. They don't have a say in whether or not they have a brother. We don't have a say in who God has placed in our lives to love. John goes far, so far to say, and Christ goes on to say, in fact, that if you don't love your brother, that is, if you hate your brother, you're actually invalidating your faith. And there's reason to doubt if you even know Christ. The Bible makes it clear that loving people can be very hard, right? I'm sure you have experienced this if you are more than a day old. Loving people can be very hard especially when they mistreat you, when they sin against you, when they use you for their own selfish pleasures, when they speak evil about you, when they lie to you, manipulate you, take advantage of you. It's hard to love people like that, but that's the only kind of people there is, <laughs> The Bible makes it clear that most of our Christianity is played out in our relationships. Most of your faith is not to be put on display in church or in Sunday school or on Facebook. Your faith is primarily put on display in how you treat other people and how you love other people. Which means that our spouses— and our classmates, and our in-laws, and our children are all an integral part about how we relate to God. The way that you relate to other people reflects what you believe about God. There's a German uh, German car collector by the name of Michael Froilich who can help illustrate this principle for us. Froerlich was a former race car driver who had collected more than 150 vintage race cars. Yet what's unique about his collection is that he did not do what most car collectors do and put his expensive cars in a garage or in a warehouse or even under a shed. In fact, he keeps them in the woods. He intentionally crashes his cars into trees. He has buried them in the mud, planted vines around them, and even parked them on cliff faces, leaving them to decay. There are thousands of car enthusiasts who go to his car garden for a tour each year, and many of them leave outwardly angry about his collecting philosophy, right? It just doesn't seem right for such expensive and valuable and powerful cars to be intentionally hidden, or intentionally left to rot, right? It, it seems like that, that they should be maintained and, and cared for and driven and put on display, right? You can't, you can't fully appreciate a vintage car that's stuck in the mud, right? Or one that you can't drive. You should be able to take it out on the racetrack and feel the horsepower beneath your feet, Yet, for so many of us, this is exactly what we've done with the gospel. We have purchased it with great cost, and then we've hoarded it up in our own hearts, not to be displayed to anyone else. Left it in disrepair, in our private gardens, away from other people. You know what I've found? It is a lot easier to walk with God if you don't get in my way. Have you noticed that? It is so much easier to just deal with God doesn't sin against you. Other people do. And so we hoard up the gospel in our relationship with the Lord. And you see, God intends that we exercise it. Not park it in the mud and leave it to rot, but to put it on display. And the best, the primary way to display the gospel is in our relationships. Do you remember what Jesus said? Let your light, let your good deeds shine before men. So that other people can see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God who's in heaven. The way you treat people can bring glory to God and draw attention to his beauty. We've said for weeks and months that the gospel is power. And if such a power like the gospel is actually present in your life, then it's going to be evident in relationships. There's no way, there's no way around that. Let's say that for a moment you and I were to take out a piece of paper and number it, one to 30. And you were to write down, starting in order of importance, the people that are in your life by proximity and time, the people that you see the most and interact with the most on a regular basis. Okay, just think briefly about some of the names that are on that list. Some of them may be sitting beside you or nearby, right? You probably, you certainly live with some of them and work with some of them and go to school with some of them. So think about the 20 or 30 people that you interact with the most. It changes from time to time, but that list has some sort of stability. Some of them you may love more than anyone in the world. Some of them you may dislike more than anyone in the world. Sometimes you may flip-flop and switch around depending on the day and the circumstances, right? But you see, we should recognize that God has ordained those relationships. God has made that list for you. God has established the people in your life and for now those are the people that God intends for you to most display his glory to. God intends for you to be the one to display the power of the gospel to those people the most. Now there's obviously many different ways that we can display the power of the gospel. We do it in our relationships in all sorts of ways. But one of the primary ways that we do this is through forgiveness. Forgiveness. Think back for a moment to Acts chapter 7. Think about Stephen, the first martyr in church history. Here in Acts chapter 7, we read one of the great sermons of the Bible. Stephen was preaching to a Jewish audience and he was explaining to them, beginning with the beginning of the Scriptures, walking them all the way through it, showing them how the entire Old Testament is pointing to the person of Christ and all the significance of the prophecies and all the significance of Christ's life and acts. And when he got done and he explained it, when he gave the great invitation, what happened? No one came forward to be saved. In fact, they killed him. They killed the preacher. If you read the whole story of Stephen, you can of course see the power of the gospel on display in many different ways. Stephen's words and his actions they clearly displayed that he obeyed the first and second commandment, that he loved God and that he loved people. He loved God so much, he loved Christ so much, he was willing to die to make him known. And he loved people so much, his neighbors, even his enemies, that he was willing to die to make Christ known to them. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that it was not his sermon or even his martyrdom that honored Christ the most, but perhaps it was his final words. If you look back down in verse 60, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, you can see Stephen did something incredible. While he was being murdered, in the act of his death, while he was being murdered for loving people, right? That's why they killed Stephen. What did he do? He prayed for them. He prayed for them. He wasn't just asking for a hedge of protection or traveling mercies or healing. He was interceding for their souls, in his final, final moments, he was asking God to not hold their sin against them. Who, who does Stephen remind you of? Who else was killed even though he was innocent? Who, can you think of any other man who was killed by those whom he was seeking to save? Who else used his final words to forgive his murderers? Christ. The one and only crucified Lord, Jesus Christ. And Stephen imitated him. I think many of us, if we were in a situation like Stephen, we would have somehow pulled out our phones and gotten on Facebook to somehow describe what was happening to us in the final moments of our life. Yet Stephen is is screaming, Father, please forgive them. They don't even know you. Stephen imitated Jesus on the cross. And you and I are called to do the same thing. If you look back down at Ephesians chapter 4, pay very close attention, and let's try to feel the weight of this command. So often, we fly through the Bible and don't feel the weight of its words, right? Feel the weight of this command with me. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Okay, if the verse stopped there, that would be one thing, but it doesn't stop there. It qualifies how we are to forgive. Forgiving one another, how? As Christ in God forgave you. Do you see? Brothers and sisters, do you hear such a demand that God is placing on your life? Do you hear this new law for those of you who have been forgiven? You and I are called to forgive others. Now, this is church. All of us would say, yeah, forgiveness. Right on, right? We, we like forgiveness. I know that. I do that. I like forgiveness. Forgiveness. But did you read this carefully? Did you consider the whole verse? How is it that we are called to forgive? How much? If there was a number, how big would it be? Just as, in, just as God in Christ forgave you. Do you feel the weight of that command? Do you hear what God expects of you to forgive others as we've been forgiven? I mean, that is, if you were to decide to go out and do the most loving thing you could possibly do, the most loving thing imaginable, to place yourself in danger in order to preach Christ to someone, that's got to be the most loving thing you can possibly do. And they were to, in response, take a rock and smash your head until you died. That's what stoning is. How would you respond? If, if, if If in that moment you're called to forgive, right? Would you respond like Jesus? Would you respond like Stephen? This is the standard for us. Do you feel the weight of this command, brothers and sisters? If God is calling us to forgive like Stephen in the big offenses, then surely he's calling us to forgive in the smaller offenses. For all the things those 20 or 30 something people have done to you. I once talked to a man who was jotting something down on a piece of paper My wife was with me, and she said, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing down a list of every offense that has been committed against me, because I don't want to forget it. The call to forgiveness is not easy. This is not what I call a willpower command, okay? There are some commands in the Bible that feel kind of attainable, right? If we can muster up enough discipline, we can kind of get it together, right? We can maybe fudge on the external behavior to make ourselves obey, but, but not this one. You cannot just go through the motions with forgiveness. You cannot just grit your teeth and forgive, right? Have you heard your children do that? I'm sorry, <laughs> right? You, you, can't, you can't do that. It is, a, it is an attitude. It is a heart action, I don't care how much self-control you have. I don't care how much discipline you have. I don't care how much you know about theology. You cannot just will yourself to forgive. There must be a heart transformation that takes place first. The command is impossible without the power of the gospel transforming your heart. Only those who have experienced the power of the gospel are able to forgive. It's the only way. So let's spend some time thinking about how this works, and then next week we'll go even further and try to work this out in more practical ways in our lives. But the first thing to notice from these two passages, namely Ephesians 4.32, is that forgiveness is not optional for the believer. If you're a Christian, you don't have the option you can't forgive 99% of people and then have those three people that you just don't talk to. Doesn't work. It's contrary to the faith. That is the big point of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This same logic appears in a variety of places in the Bible. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul makes the same point with very similar words bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You see, the Bible teaches us, and it even assumes, that those who have experienced the forgiveness of God through his gospel will naturally be radically forgiving towards others. Not just the small sins, not just to bring peace back into the home, but genuine forgiveness, radical forgiveness like Stephen. In fact, this is a is such a sure sign. Forgiveness is such a clear sign that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18 that if we don't forgive our brothers, then we can't expect forgiveness from God the Father. Be more on that later. But the truth remains that if we are unforgiving. If we, are un, if we are resentful or bitter, if you hold a grudge against anyone for any sin, no matter how significant, it is a clear sign that on some level, you don't understand the power of the gospel. An unwillingness to forgive could even be a sign that you have not experienced the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how serious it is. Forgiveness is not optional. But let's think now about how the gospel itself actually prepares us to forgive. I mean, if we're going to be like God, if we're going to forgive as we have been forgiven, then surely we have to understand how we've been forgiven. All right, We need to understand the mechanics of how we've received grace. We must be well acquainted with the specifics of what God has done for us in the gospel. So that we, if we ever have any hope to imitate him in our relationships with others, we will know what the carbon copy is to be like. If you think of an artist who is painting a portrait, think of it like this. We must, like an artist, glance at our subject many times, the gospel. And then if we are to paint an accurate representation of it with our lives, glance many times at the gospel as we paint a gospel portrait with our lives. So let's consider a couple just key components of the gospel, again, together. The first is this. The gospel begins with God making a move towards us. God takes the initiative. God takes the first step. We have sinned against God, yet God is willing to make the first move of mercy. You're familiar with the passage 1 John chapter 4, right? It's one of the first ones we learn. Why do you love, church? Because God has loved you first. That's actually the the only source of love. That's the only real kind of love is love that flows out of love received from God. We love because he first loved us. Yet I feel the need to remind us this morning that Jesus did not die for you because you are awesome. He did not die for you because you are amazing, and he wants to be associated with you simply. Jesus died for us, not because we are amazing, but because he is amazing. God is the offended party, and yet he still makes the first move. Our sins offended him. Our sins pushed him away and have driven him away. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear you. Yet God still makes the first move. In Romans chapter 5, it is clear that our sin against God is so severe, and it was so severe that God considered us to be His enemies. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We were enemies. Don't let that word roll off. Enemies. Nevertheless, God takes the initiative to cross enemy lines into our presence and still die for us. God takes the initiative to reconcile God made the first move. The second thing we should consider about the gospel is that it includes an offer of reconciliation. It is an offer of reconciliation. The whole story of the Bible is one of how God offers reconciliation to the world. The gospel is not just of God's love and forgiveness. It is certainly that, but it is including an offer of reconciliation. Perhaps you're familiar with the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is talking about this great reconciliation. He says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Look at this. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? There is an appeal, a plea. Reconciliation is not guaranteed by God. Notice how the apostle is pleading with his hearers, be reconciled to God, respond to God, take action and respond to God's offer for peace. You realize that Jesus is, Though he has died for the sins of the whole world, yet the whole world will not be saved. And it's because it's refused God's offer of reconciliation. If you are to receive the gospel, if you are to respond to God's offer of reconciliation, let me tell you again, church. You must do so by placing your faith in Christ and turning away from your sin, which doesn't satisfy and is leading to death, and turn to the infinite pleasure of knowing and following Christ. God does not just wave a magic wand over the world and make all the sin go away. He does not just poof, your sins are gone. He does not sweep them under the rug. He sent his son to die for our sin problem. For the sins of the whole world, yet the whole world will not be saved because it does not respond to God's offer of reconciliation. So no, notice there is an offer of reconciliation. Thirdly, Christ suffered. Christ suffered for our sins. In the gospel transaction, strangely, it is the innocent one who suffers. Doesn't that sound wrong? The innocent one should never suffer. The guilty one should suffer. Yet in the gospel, the innocent one suffers. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and be reconciled to God. By his wounds you have been healed. Though Jesus has done nothing wrong. He was the one who's crucified. Store that away. You will need that for help in forgiving others in the future. Okay, so we could obviously go into much greater depth on the contents of the gospel. We can't find its bottom. But for our purpose today, let's keep these three things in mind. That God makes the first move. That there is an offer on the table for reconciliation. And that Christ suffered for our sins. The innocent one, Suffers. Okay, so how can we imitate God's forgiving love for us? How can we imitate the way God has loved us with other people? And more specifically, how in the world do we find power to do something like that? Let's consider if we are to forgive others as God has forgiven us, we should imitate what He has done in the gospel. So here's how we mirror the gospel. Let's just take those three things we just said. If God has taken the initiative in forgiving us, what should we do? We should take the initiative in forgiving others. We are not simply to sit around and wait for reconciliation. We are to chase it down. You need to actively pursue that person who is mad at you. You actively pursue the one who has hurt you and sinned against you. Take the first step. I tell my girls this all the time. I don't care who started it, right? That's not the point. It doesn't matter if it was 95% her fault and 5% his fault, right? It doesn't matter. Christ took the first step towards us, and guess what? It was 0% his fault. He was innocent. He took the step towards us, and what did we do? We killed him for it. Oh, how costly. Is forgiveness. If you think back to Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty-two, there we go. Consider this together. The text reminds us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. So often, if you think about the way that your relationships practically work, especially when there's sin involved, you will find that kindness is very hard to come by. If you have been sinned against, if you're in conflict with someone, kindness is the last thing that you want to do. So often, though, reconciliation and forgiveness begins with undeserved kindness. The kind of kindness that gets nothing in response. Undeserved kindness for the person who has hurt you. If you have been sinned against, or if you're in conflict with someone who is hard-hearted, or persisting in sin, or continually lying to you, you can begin to initiate reconciliation by moving towards this person in kindness. Who knows? The hardest heart in the world may be softened by your kindness. I know it's Mother's Day, but if I could pause for just a moment and speak to the men of the congregation especially those of you who are husbands and those of you who are fathers, those of you who are leaders, those of you who perhaps hope to one day be husbands or fathers, if I could just speak to you for a moment. God has called both men and women to imitate Christ and how we forgive others. But as a husband, you and I have been called to a double imitation. We've been called to love our wives, the way Christ has loved His church. We are called to love others like Christ. Is that not a double portion of love? Yet so many of us are cowards, averse to conflict, avoiding difficulties and hard conversations. Yet it should be us who take the initiative. Men, take the initiative in establishing forgiveness and reconciliation in the home and in your relationships and in the church. If forgiveness, if the first step hurts the most, then we should be the ones who go forward. Male headship in the Bible is not a get-me-the-beer-from-the-fridge kind of headship. It is a call to sacrificial laying down your life for those whom God has called you to love. So whoever's on your list, lay down your life for them. Let us be the ones who take the first step. No matter what the response is, let us be the one who lay down our lives for our wives and for our children and for our neighbors. Let us be the ones who lead the way, always willing to do what is hard. What I've found is that when we forgive sin from those who least deserve it, we bring glory to the one who deserves glory the most. Let's lead the way, men. Lead the way. Second thing to consider in how we imitate Christ is that we should recognize that reconciliation is dependent upon repentance. Another way to think about this is we are called to always have the offer on the table. We know that life is hard. Relationships are hard, and just because one person wants to be reconciled, it does not mean that the relationship is mended. We know this. And though we are called to forgive every kind of sin that you can imagine, every imaginable variety of sin, that does not mean that reconciliation is guaranteed. This is why Romans 12 is a great comfort to us who live on the front lines of pursuing peace. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Think about Christ. In spite of Christ's initiative, the great peacemaker, billions of people remain his enemy. Billions of people remain unreconciled to Christ. Stephen was not reconciled to his executioners. Jesus was not reconciled to all of the Roman centurions. And no matter how much kindness you offer, no matter how persistent you are in love, No matter how willing you are to forgive, the other party may be unwilling, especially in his or her actions. So what is our obligation to them now? How do we respond? How do we imitate Christ in those really messy situations? What about when you still disagree? Or when the person has not stopped in their destructive sin? Well, We'll talk about this more next week. But let's think about it like this we must first recognize that we're called to strive towards reconciliation, but there's no guarantee that we will achieve it. And when that is the occasion, we are not guilty, but we must leave the offer of forgiveness on the table. That's the key. There's never an occasion, there's never an occasion where we can take the right of forgiveness off the table. It does not matter what the sin is or how long time has gone on. It doesn't matter how much we've been manipulated or mistreated. It doesn't matter if you are remarried. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We can never withdraw the offer, our willingness for forgiveness and reconciliation. You can stop forgiving when God stops forgiving. You can can choose not to forgive a sin that God does not forgive. We are imitators of God, which means that we will always be willing to be reconciled with the one who has wronged us, but we recognize that they have to respond. They have to respond in repentance for the relationship to be restored. One of the hardest things for us as believers to do is to maintain a posture of forgiveness towards someone who is continually sinning against us. So you have an opportunity to be like Jesus and forgive continually. There is no exception sin here. Not abusive speech, not adultery, not even murder. If we are called to forgive as God has forgiven us, what sin is he unwilling to forgive? A third and final way that we can reckon, that we can imitate Christ in forgiveness is to recognize that forgiveness hurts. Doesn't it? If you've tried to do this, you know that blood and sweat has spilled in such an endeavor. Sin hurts. And forgiveness hurts, too. Forgiveness does not magically erase the hurt. There are still consequences. Harsh words, though they can be forgiven, may still resonate in a marriage. As you work through forgiveness and establishing trust, forgiveness does not erase all the consequences, but it does express a willingness to work through those consequences together but it still hurts. I found that this is where we as Christians so often get hung up. We're all good with this really high standard of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness, go, until it is us in the hot seat, until we are the ones called to forgive some heinous act, or some bully of a husband, or some unrepentant child. We're good with this in theory, but when we're called to act, when, it, when the sin hits close to home, and when we're called to forgive a real sin with real pain, it hurts. What do we do in an occasion like this? I was talking to a friend who was dealing with the betrayal of his wife and his marriage. And we were talking about this standard of forgiveness and how to work towards rebuilding the marriage. She wasn't interested at all. And he was reckoning with how much forgiveness was going to cost him and he said this he said it sounds to me like i have to be a sin eater pastor nathan it sounds to me like what you're telling me is i have to eat this sin he was of course referring to the incredibly high cost of forgiving someone who hurts you and i thought about that for a moment and i thought that's exactly right Did our sin not hurt Christ? Did He not bear our sin in His body? Church, forgiveness is not a pain-free endeavor. In fact, it is just the opposite. Forgiveness is an act of love that takes you to the cross. Forgiveness is an endeavor of the cross, and a cross is a place of pain. Our sin hurt Christ, And as we imitate him and his sacrificial love, we will find that love sometimes hurts as we move towards other people who mistreat us. But this still hasn't told us how to find the power to do this. So far, we've simply described the manner in which we are to forgive and considered the standard, but where do we find the strength? How can we be like Stephen? I mean, really, how can anybody do this? I mean, do you know what she's done to me? Do you know what he said Do you realize what I caught him doing? Let me answer this by illustrating with the cross chart. We have perhaps used this grid many times in the past, and we've said that that the gospel grid, what do I call it? Yeah, the gospel grid, it illustrates the way that we grow in our walk with the Lord, the way we grow in the gospel. Christian growth comes as we grow in appreciation for Jesus. The more we grow aware of God's standard and God's holiness, the more we see what he is like and realize how high the law is, the bigger, the taller that top line becomes. And the more that we realize, I don't measure up, the more that bottom line comes. That's called humility. And so there's this big gap, this big gap between what God is like and what I am like, and so I need someone to step in my place. Praise be to Jesus Christ who died in my place and lived in my place and rose in my place and so now I get all the things that he's earned. That's the gospel. The more you realize how big that gospel is, the more you are in awe of what Christ has done for you, the more horrified you are at how much you don't measure up and the more amazed you are at how beautiful God is, the more you love Christ. And the more you love Christ, do you know what happens? The more you can love other people. The more you appreciate the cross, the more you begin to realize how much grace and how much forgiveness has been given to you. And the more you have, the more you can give away. Think about it like this. How much forgiveness is required for your neighbor's offense? How much forgiveness are you, how much suffering, how much of a cross do you have to stand on to forgive the one who has hurt you? Well, the trick here, church, is to compare, to compare, to compare how much grace has been given to you versus how much grace you're being called to give to someone else. I mean, how much forgiveness do they really need? How great is the sin? How much pain is involved? How innocent are you in the matter? Perhaps this much, or maybe it's more like this, Or maybe there's this much pain, or maybe this much, or maybe if you really compare it, you realize it's this much. The strength and the power to forgive other people only comes when you consider how much you have been forgiven, and then you compare. That's the only way it comes. And here's the thing, beloved. You will never be called to forgive anyone as much as you have been forgiven. No one will ever sin against you as greatly as you have sinned against God and have been forgiven. So as you compare, you will find strength and mercy to forgive. Do you see? The solution is to consider the gospel, to consider Jesus. How great is his work of reconciliation? How great is the cross? We'll never find its bottom. So let's worship and respond together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the mercy that we have found in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would bring understanding to our hearts as we consider how it is that you're calling us to respond. I pray, Father, that for those who are here who have suffered great pain as others have sinned against them, Lord, I pray that you would give them new mercy and an appreciation of your love that they can respond by forgiving other people. And let that display to the world what you are like. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.